Let's pray. Lord and King, thank you that you don't leave your people to figure things out on our own, but that you speak to us through your powerful and living word. Please, as we turn to your Bible, would you use my inadequacy and our collective weakness to display your great power, as you speak to our hearts despite our distractedness and fickleness. We want to hear you, to know you better, and to love you more. Amen. I wonder how many of you have had a moment where you've just snapped. Something has gotten on top of you, and you've reacted entirely out of instinct and emotion. I certainly have. I had one last week. Um, I dropped something really heavy on my toes, and immediately I began hopping around the house, howling like a husky filming a YouTube video. If you don't get the reference, I'm sorry, but come and see me afterwards and I'll show you. There was no logic, no thought, thankfully no wife to watch me dancing around like an idiot. Unfortunately, I didn't realise that my toes were bleeding really badly and that I was spraying blood all over our kitchen. So when I eventually calmed down, I had to scoot around on my bum trying to keep my foot in the air as I wiped it all back up. Now, that's a very trivial example, but I imagine that most of us can relate to the principle. Suffering drives a reaction out of us. And Hannah, the subject of our passage this evening, was no different. Where Hannah may have differed to you and I, though, and where we can learn from her was in how she reacted. But before we dig in, it'll be helpful to understand the context. And before we even do that, I just want to note that most, if not all, of the history in the Old Testament is not intended to be prescriptive. It's included in the Bible to help us understand and relate to God, not to predict what God's going to do in our lives. We're going to see this morning that Hannah experienced both spiritual and practical relief from her suffering in the immediate aftermath to her reaction. But the latter won't necessarily be true for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes how he was given a thorn in the flesh that tormented him, driving him to plead three times with God for relief. However, instead, God told him that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul wasn't freed from his trial, but instead he found that God provided endurance and grace to carry him through it. It's even more important to understand, though, that while we might not escape our torments on this earth, God's people will be free in the end. In Revelation 21, God showed John a glimpse of a future reality, telling him that Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There's no promise for Christians of an easy life here and now, but we know that the trials cannot last, and Jesus has told us that it will be worthwhile. He says that anyone who suffers loss for his sake will not fail to receive a hundred times more and inherit eternal life. Paul understood this well. While speaking about that thorn in the flesh, he wrote this. He said, This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So as we look at Hannah's experiences this morning, Please remember that while there's no guarantee of an easy life now, 
we have a far greater promise to look forward to. So, thinking about the context for our passage then, we dive into the Old Testament towards the end of the reign of Israel's judges. God's people, the Israelites, had finally completed a 40-year sentence in the desert after rebelling against God, and they were now living in the land that God had promised them. However, things weren't going quite as the Israelites might have expected. Foreign powers opposed them, they fought with one another, and their relationship with God was far from plain sailing. Their last great leader, Joshua, had died, and Israel dived headfirst into disobedience and sin. And in response, God withdrew his protection and support in order to bring Israel back. But Judges 1.19 says that Israel refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so it continued. Eventually, though, Israel did cry out to God, who, in his mercy, sent out temporary rulers called judges to save Israel and restore their relationship. These men and women were raised up by God to rescue Israel from the consequences of their rebellion. But, again, Israel rejected God. In fact, throughout the book of Judges, Israel cycles through rebellion, judgment, repentance, and rescue, over and over and over again, repeatedly turning away from God. It turns out that neither Israel nor their judge rescuers could break the cycle of their sin. And what's more, as we go through that book, the judges themselves become less and less convincing. As the years progress, each new judge seems to care less about God and more about themselves. And it's in, by the end, it's almost as if they are saving Israel despite themselves. And the book of Judges ends by saying, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And that's a sad reflection on Israel's spiritual state as we get into the book of 1 Samuel, because Israel did have a king. God was their king, but they refused to recognize him. So as we move into the book of 1 Samuel, where we're going to be this morning, Israel was in a bad way. And we're going to see that God reached into their spiritual darkness in a continued effort to be in relationship with them. So if you want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, sorry, I haven't got the page numbers. Um, and we're going to read the whole of chapter 1 and the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And as I read this, notice that two things are repeated over and over again in the passage. The Lord and asking. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphramite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and wouldn't eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? 
Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice wasn't heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they rose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband told her. Stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed home and nursed her son until she weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord. As surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. 
He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The opening verses here should cause us to sit up and take note of Elkanah. You see, the phrase, there was a certain man, was last used to introduce the father of one of the judges in Judges. Elkanah is also introduced by way of a lengthy genealogy, suggesting that he's a man of importance. He has two wives, suggesting that he's materially wealthy. And the fact that in verse 3 he took his family to worship at Shiloh every year suggests that they were a God-fearing family. And in fact, if you read on in Samuel, uh, we find that these visits took place despite the fact that the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were corrupt and abusing their positions. However, as we learn about Elkanah and his family, we will see that not all is well, particularly when we look at his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Hannah, whose name means favoured, was unable to have children, while Peninnah, which means fruitful, had several. And Hannah's barrenness, which is already incredibly tragic, had further implications for her as an Israelite. You see, Israel was waiting for a saviour to be born and to redeem them. And Hannah was excluded from that national sense of purpose. It's reasonable to assume that Hannah was Elkanah's first wife and that he married Peninnah once it became clear that Hannah couldn't give him any children. As such, Peninnah and Hannah were natural rivals. And Peninnah treated Hannah as such. In verses 6 and 7, it describes Peninnah persistently taunting and provoking Hannah year after year after year driving Hannah to such depths of despair that she couldn't even eat. Elkanah's efforts to cheer her up may have been well-meaning, but ultimately misguided. So these eight verses give us an introduction to the life of Elkanah and his family. But they really focus on Hannah. And as they go into expansive detail about her life and suffering, they smack us in the face with a difficult and uncomfortable truth that Hannah is suffering anguish at the Lord's hand. The Lord's hand? Twice, in verses 5 and 6, the author writes, the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. And when we consider what the rest of the Bible says about God's sovereign rule, it makes sense that this too would be under his control. In Colossians 1, Paul writes that, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Isaiah chapter 14, God says through Isaiah, the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be. As I have purposed, so it will happen. According to Proverbs 16, even the outcome of lots or dice are determined by the Lord. There's nothing that sits outside of his control, including people's trials and suffering. 
Earlier in the same chapter of Proverbs, in verse 4, it says, The Lord works everything to its proper end, even the wicked a day of disaster. And in Lamentations, it says, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord hasn't decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? And in that passage in 2 Corinthians, I mentioned briefly earlier, Paul wrote that he was given a thorn in the flesh by the Lord. As we cover Judges, we see that God repeatedly gave Israel into the hand of their enemies to bring them back from their rebellion. It's inescapable then that God does send suffering on his people. At this point, it's really important to note that there is absolutely no suggestion that Hannah's barrenness is in any way a punishment for sin. As we've seen, the passage actually is at plains to point out that Elkanah and his family, Hannah included, were faithful worshippers of God. When Hannah prayed to God, she addressed herself as his servant. So remember, Hannah was not being punished. The question then is, why is this happening? Why did the Lord close Hannah's womb? Is the God of the Bible some distant, malicious God who tortures his creation when he's angry? The answer, hopefully you already know, is a definitive, resounding no. The passage in Isaiah 14 said that God is working out a plan. As I have purposed, so it will happen. He undertakes all things with an ultimate goal in mind. And in Ephesians 1, Paul writes, In him we were chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Nothing takes place in our lives without meaning. In everything, God is working to carry out his purposes. So the God of the Bible isn't some malicious being callously hurling trials our way. But on its own, that might not be hugely comforting. Does he care about us? Does he recognize the impact it has on us when he throws things our way? The Bible shows us that God cares deeply for our well-being. In Romans 8.28, we see that not only is God working to fulfill his purposes, but he is concerned for our good. It says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Paul was given that thorn so that he wouldn't be conceited. Israel, in Judges, was defeated by its enemies so that it would turn back to God. God cares he is at work for our good and his glory. And what's more, he's intimately present in our sufferings. Hannah's trial isn't downplayed in the passage. In fact, if you look at it, it's in the limelight. A huge chunk of chapter one is spent describing Hannah's suffering in detail. And remember who keeps cropping up through the passage over and over again, the Lord. It's no accident that he is mentioned 22 times in chapter one. It shows us that God is intimately present and at work in Hannah's anguish. And an ultimate example of this is our Lord Jesus, isn't it? Who gave up his royal position to die the most agonizing death on the cross so that we could enter into relationship with God. And in fact, on top of that, as a result of his death on the cross, Hebrews tells us that Jesus can empathize with our suffering because he experienced it to its fullness. 
on the cross, he endured the deepest pain imaginable, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He endured the complete and utter fullness of all that is wrong in the universe and all of the consequences of his brokenness. He understands what you're going through. He knows exactly what you're feeling, and he's felt it too. He isn't holding you at arm's length. He's right there with you. And this passage is telling you that whatever you are suffering, it is for something. You might not know what, and you might not find out about it until we're in glory, but I promise you, the Bible is promising you whatever anguish you face, it's not for nothing. Dave Ralph Davis says it much better than I can. He says, Hannah's suffering drove her to the throne of grace, to the presence of Yahweh, to fervent supplication from which eventually came Samuel. Let us not downplay the heavy grief of Hannah's or our own bleak circumstances, but let us moderate our despair by realizing it may be but another prelude to a mighty work of God. Hannah understood this. And as we'll see in the next verses, as she came to God, she experienced relief in God's presence. In verses 9 to 18. After years of torment at Penina's hand, Hannah finally snapped. During one of their family worship trips to Shiloh, it all became too much. And having not said or really done anything in the first verses, she stood up and she went to the temple. And there, Hannah poured out her heart to God. We're only given the details of a small part of Hannah's prayer. It's a promise that she made to the Lord. And as we read that, you might have felt a little uncomfortable. Does it not seem like she was bargaining with God? She promised that if God gave her a son, then she would dedicate him to serve the Lord all his life. You might be thinking, that's not really what I want to teach my kids. But I think our translation and our cultural biases hamstring our understanding of what she meant. Our discomfort originates in the assumption that Hannah misunderstood the character of God, that somehow she considered him less than he is, and that she could cajole him and twist him into doing what she wanted. But if you really dig into what she said, we'll see that nothing could be further from the truth. Think about the context again. Hannah and her family have been coming to worship at this temple year after year. Hannah wasn't a foreigner. She wasn't ignorant of what the scriptures said. She had experienced the Jewish religious practices, the ceremonies designed to teach them about God over and over again. And look at what she says. In verse 11, Hannah addressed God as Lord Almighty, literally Yahweh of hosts. She was driven there because there was no earthly means of help for her. Elkanah couldn't do anything. Eli was sat uselessly in a chair. His sons were wicked abusers of their faith. So Hannah turned to the all-powerful God, the repeated rescuer of Israel, the sovereign ruler of the universe, because he was her only hope. In fact, rather than 
cynical selfishness, I would argue that Hannah displayed a breathtaking confidence and faith coming to the Lord in the way she did. When in verse 11 she asked God to look on your servant's misery and remember me, it's a reference to Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 when God is looking on his people as a nation and he says, I have indeed seen, looked on, the misery of my people in Egypt. See, Hannah asked the God who created the stars, who keeps the whole universe in motion, to remember her. Isn't that just staggeringly audacious when you think about it? See, Hannah believed that the same God who concerns himself with the collective suffering of a whole nation would care equally about her personal hardship. Not out of any kind of entitlement. I don't think there's any sense in the passage that she was owed anything. But out of confidence in God's goodness and his love. And clearly, she really believed it. Look at how she prayed. In verse 10, she prayed out of her deep anguish, weeping bitterly. In verse 15, pouring out her soul. Again in verse 16, praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Hannah didn't come timidly or half-heartedly or distractedly. She prayed so passionately that Eli thought she was drunk. She was full of confidence in her God's power to answer his prayer, convinced of his care for her, and as a result, she threw herself into his love like a little child runs into their parents' arms when they're upset. Compared to the childlike faith Hannah displayed, the vow she made almost seems like a side note, doesn't it? And I think that's how we're supposed to take it. This promise isn't the pivot that transforms Hannah's fortunes, but it's a tiny gesture by a godly woman, recognizing that even a child she brings into the world really belongs to the Lord, and that the most important thing for that child is that his life reflects that reality. Now, going back to Hannah's prayer, her desperate plea to God. Look at what she found in that moment in verse 18. Relief. Notice God hasn't said anything to her. She wasn't pregnant. Practically, nothing had changed. And yet she went away and her face was no longer downcast. When Hannah committed her situation to this God, this powerful, sovereign Loving God, she found peace. Peace because she, like Paul, found God's grace to be sufficient for her. As she went back to the table with her family, she was different. And yet, nothing really was different. Undoubtedly, she suffered the barbs of Penina's taunts again. So had she become some transcendent saint, unbothered by the world? No. Like Paul, who wrestled with his thorn, like Job, who wrestled with his suffering, there's no reason to think that Hannah was any different. But her face was no longer downcast. And that's because she was comforted in the king's presence. He provided her all that she needed to bear this trial for as long as she would need to endure it. And Hannah's experience is included in our Bibles so that we can learn from it so that you and I can know to take our suffering to the Lord. The same Lord that says to us through Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.
Our God doesn't just tell us that our pain is meaningful. He promises to be with us, supporting us and comforting us always. He is there, ready for you to lean on him. He'll never get irritated or bored or distracted. He is mighty to sustain the whole universe while hearing and leading you and every one of us simultaneously. So cast your pain on the Lord. Experience the freedom of pouring out your soul to the cosmic ruler of the universe who is never too busy to listen. Maybe that feels like a big ask. Maybe you feel that there's something stopping you in the way between you and God. Maybe you don't know what it is, but the idea of this seems scary and hard. Please, please, please take the time, even this week, today, to pray about it and figure it out. Do you need to reflect on his character through his word? Read it. Do you need to comfort, confront repressed doubts or unresolved hurts? Don't wait. Do you need to deal with unconfessed sin? Get on with it. Maybe you're at a total loss. Maybe you need to talk to someone. I'm confident that this room is full of people who want to listen to you. Even if you just need to ask God to show you the way and give you Hannah-like faith, ask away. Jesus says in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. It might not be the work of a moment or a day or a month, And we won't grasp this really properly until Jesus returns. But what we can understand, we must set on our minds and hearts with his help. Place your burdens on the Lord. Experience the freedom that only he offers. As we've read, Hannah went home, and in time she gave birth to a son. The Lord did remember her, and Hannah recognized God's providence, even as she named her child Samuel, meaning I asked the Lord for him. Now, if you're familiar with Israel's pattern of behavior in the Old Testament, that sentence that starts in verse 21 might have caused you to quietly shake your head in frustration, as Hannah appeared to have second thoughts about her vow. When the rest of her family go to Shiloh, it simply says, Hannah did not go. And given Israel's history of repeatedly turning their back on God once things got good, you'd be forgiven for jumping to conclusions and assuming that Hannah had decided to ignore her vow. And even if you ignore Israel's history, who could blame her? After years of torment and stigma, she finally had a child. And now she was supposed to give him up? I mean, maybe once she's a teenager, but as a baby? Once again, though, I think we might be projecting our own flaws onto Hannah. Remember that her vow rather than being a misguided attempt to cajole God, was a recognition that any child she bore already belonged to him. And as it happens, Hannah cleared up any misgivings we might have had in the very next verse, because with her husband's agreement, she decided to stay home with him until he was ready to leave her care. And then, true to her word, she gave Samuel over to serve the Lord in Shiloh. And in doing so, Hannah teaches us a lesson on faithfulness in blessing, 
Is it easier to remember the Lord in good times or in bad? In Proverbs chapter 30, the author asks God to give me neither riches nor poverty, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. There are dangers in both the good and the bad times. But both Moses and Joshua in the Old Testament went to great lengths to warn Israel specifically against becoming complacent and arrogant in their prosperity. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses warned, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and when your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And that risk that Moses warned them about is increased, isn't it, when we move into a time of prosperity from a season of trouble and hardship. The lifting weight from our shoulders by the Lord's comfort or by the practical relief of our hardship can cause us to go beyond feeling freed and into a kind of thoughtless state of just living in the moment. Of course, it is good and right to rejoice in God's goodness to us. But I know that I, at least, have gone too far before and lost my right perspective of a good God who is also our sovereign king. And just imagine the temptation for Hannah. She must have felt like life was finally going perfectly. She was living the Israelite equivalent of a comfortable middle-class life. Elkanah was pretty wealthy. She had a family. She was able to contribute in Israel's search for the Messiah. And she had finally had an answer to her rival's taunts. How easy would it have been to settle into the life that everyone around her seemed to be enjoying and to pretend that she never made that vow? I think it's helpful to ask ourselves how susceptible we are to that kind of thing. Do our church commitments ever seem like a drag when the rest of life seems to be going well? Two services on a Sunday when we could be in the garden having a barbecue? Giving sacrificially when our colleagues have just bought a new car? What about taking time after church to talk to that person who sat on their own when our group of friends is beckoning us over for a chat? Do you ever get frustrated with yourself when you reflect on how quickly your prayer life can slip when things are going well? Would you be embarrassed if people knew how nominal your quiet times have become? Do you ever feel so comfortable in this life now that actually you don't spend much time thinking about God and certainly not looking forward to his return? Hannah had a deep understanding of the undeserved favor God had shown her and the total claim that God has over his creation, which, if we grasp it for ourselves, can help us to be faithful in our own prosperity. I said at the beginning, two phrases are repeated over and over again throughout this passage, the Lord and to ask. And the second really comes to the fore as we look at Hannah's response to the birth of her firstborn son. Firstly, as we've already mentioned, his name, he's named because I asked the Lord for him. But also, have a look at what Hannah says as she gives Samuel over to the Lord's service in verse 24. 
Firstly, though, consider the sacrifices she brought. A three-year-old bull, three years older than what would have been normal for a sacrifice at the time, all the extra cost involved with raising it, more flour than were to be expected. I mean, you could be forgiven, couldn't you, for wondering why Hannah brought sacrifices at all, given that she was already giving up her only son to worship God in the temple. But this brings us back to her mindset in making that vow in the first place. Understanding that Samuel was the Lord's, that he was at most a gift on loan, Hannah recognized that it's not a sacrifice to dedicate him as she promised to. Giving back her precious son to God's use was a privilege and a joy. And so she sacrificed generously in thanks and praise to the God who remembered her. And look at what she said. Smith offers us a helpful translation of verses 26 to 28. He says this, he says, For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked of him. And I also have given back what was asked to Yahweh. All of his days, he, Samuel, is the one who was asked to to Yahweh. See, Hannah worshipfully remembers God's gracious answer to her prayers in Samuel. And she places him wholly at the Lord's disposal. Despite the cost to her personally, Hannah faithfully commits back to God her greatest gift, her firstborn son. James writes, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. And Paul in Romans 11 carries on in the same vein. Whoever is given to God that he should repay them. For from him and through him and for him are all things... We have to recognize that we are blessed people in so many ways. In our freedom to worship, our time, our material wealth, our faithful church leaders, our loving brothers and sisters, and in so many other aspects of our lives. Be careful then that you don't become complacent. Too comfortable in your life here and now. Be like Hannah, sacrificially and faithfully giving back to God what he first gave you. In the words of the hymn, Love Incarnate, I ask that you so fill me with your peace, your power, your breath, that I never love my life so much to shrink from facing death. That's not likely to be physical death for most of us. But we may be called to die to comfort, wealth, leisure, reputation, career, any number of things. So ask yourself, are you prepared for that? Because if not, then this is a text we need to reflect on. These are truths we need to pray over earnestly so that we are equipped to live a life of faithful, joyous commitment to God, offering him all we have and we are. Hannah's life has shown us that we don't suffer needlessly. Our hardships are achieving God's purposes for his kingdom and our good. And she's shown us that we can turn to him, our loving, heavenly father, and pour our hearts out to him. And he's promised that he will sustain us, comfort us, carry us through our trials. And we've been challenged to be faithful to him in all circumstances, having been warned particularly of the need to earnestly serve him in our times of blessing. But Hannah has one final, very brief lesson to teach us. As she reflected in prayer on her experience in chapter two, Hannah found that God's intimate care and loving provision for her 
were actually no surprise. They were obvious working out of his character. In chapter 2, Hannah's prayer is a joyful recounting of her experience in verses 1 to 3, and she sets it against a kind of summary of God's character in verses 4 to 8, before looking forward to his ultimate rule at the end of those verses. Hannah praised the Lord because he built her up when she was crushed. He was her foundation when everything else failed. He is the God who remembered her. But she realized that this is what God always does. You see, he feeds the hungry. He gives comfort to the lonely. He provides for the needy and triumphs over the enemy. Her experience was just another reflection of his great love. But the final verses of her prayer are the really key ones. And while I hope the whole passage has been something of an encouragement to you, this is where I think it gets really exciting. You see, as Hannah looked forward to what God's final complete rule would be like, when he permanently silences his enemies, when he brings his faithful people to a place of unending safety, when he has judged all sin, when his king is placed on high and exalted, as she waited expectantly for that day, Hannah drew a parallel between the way God delivered her and his final outright deliverance of all creation. The more cynical among us might have read this passage and thought, so what? So she didn't have a son and now she does. Big deal. But the point is much, much bigger than that. If you remember anything from this morning, remember this truth, which again I'm going to turn to Dave Ralph Davis for. Every time God lifts you out of a miry bog and sets your feet upon a rock is a sample of the coming of the kingdom of God. It's a down payment of the full deliverance, the macro, the full salvation that will be yours at last. The likelihood is that if you're a Christian, you will experience God's help many, many times in varying ways and in varying magnitudes. But remember this, every single one of them is a little picture, a little down payment on how God will rescue you in the end. How? Well, it turns out that Hannah wasn't the only childless woman that God used to deliver his people. Samuel went on to anoint God's kings in ancient Israel. But his family history is just a picture of another great and miraculous birth. Some thousand years after him, a virgin, Mary, gave birth to a son. And she named her son Jesus, Saviour. This son was special on a whole other level. You see, Jesus was God incarnate. The God who remembered Hannah had sent God the Son to earth as a little baby, remembering all of his people as he carried out a rescue plan that made Hannah's look tiny by comparison. Jesus, sustainer of the universe, came to earth where he suffered a completely undeserved, agonizing execution, complete separation from God the Father, as he endured the punishment for the whole world's rejection of God. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, his payment on your behalf and mine accepted. Now he sits at the God the Father's side, he's our go-between, so that we can come to God like Hannah did, with even more confidence that he will remember us. For those who recognize Jesus as Lord, there is a final rescue ahead when Jesus will return, as Hannah described, silencing the wicked, judging the earth, 
guarding his faithful servants and taking his rightful place as universally acknowledged king of all. And then, as we read at the beginning of the sermon, he will wipe every tear from their eye. God loves us and cares for us. And he's redeemed us and he's made a way for us to be in relationship with him. And he calls us to live faithfully for him. So we're going to close by singing a song that reminds us of his presence with us when things are difficult.
that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.